0: As you've been going through the catechism in the afternoon services, the catechism being your uh, confession of faith, one of the three confessions of faith, you've come to uh, Lord's Day 42. In this part of the catechism, uh, the confession is going through the commandments, and Lord's Day 42 is about the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Our scripture reading in connection with that commandment is going to be 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll read together verses 1 through 15, page 1331. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints, and not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. This is the word of God. And then we turn our attention to our confession, Lord's Day 42, page 557, in the back of the book of praise. What does God forbid in the eighth commandment? God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, but also such wicked schemes and devices as false weights and measures, deceptive merchandising, counterfeit money, and usury. We must not defraud our neighbor in any way, whether by force or by show of right. In addition, God forbids all greed and all abuse or squandering of his gifts. What does God require of you in this commandment? I must promote my neighbor's good whenever, wherever I can and may, Deal with him as I would like others to deal with me and work faithfully so that I may be able to give to those in need. This is our confession. Beloved in Christ Jesus, our Lord, while I was preparing for this sermon back in Langley, I came across an interesting list. I'm sure you've seen it perhaps at some point on Facebook or something like that. It's called the toddler's rules. The toddler's rules, and it goes like this. If I want it, it's mine. If it's in my hands, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If I had a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any kind of way. If we are building something together, all the pieces are mine. If it looks just like mine, it's mine. If I think it's mine, it's mine. If I give it to you and change my mind later, it's still mine. And once it's mine, it will never belong to anyone else. If you have a toddler, um, as, as I do again, uh, you will know that this list is not a joke. It sounds kind of cute when you think about it until you're dealing with it, and then it's rather frustrating. The worst thing, though, is that if we reflect a little more deeply into our adult hearts, it's that we don't change much uh, from the time we are toddlers. At least when we're inclined to follow our sinful desires, we find ourselves to be in much the same situation and that's really what the catechism or what the, the commandment of God, of course, is addressing in the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. If you want to put that in toddler terms, uh, what we are being taught this afternoon is what God says to us, it's not yours. In fact, we could say at the heart of the Eighth Commandment is God saying it's all mine. We, we open worship this morning with, with Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so God comes to us this afternoon, and he begins with this, saying, it's all mine. It all belongs to me. And and as we look at this commandment together, we're going to find out what does it mean then for us to, to live as those who are living in God's world Uh, This is my Father's world, as we heard this morning. We'll see that there's a lot more when we dig under the surface to this commandment, just as there is, as I'm sure you've discovered over the past weeks, um, going through the first part of the catechism, or through the earlier part of the catechism, that there's so much uh, deeper than simply the surface level of these commandments. And I hope that at the end of the day, what you'll discover about the Eighth Commandment as well, is that at the heart of our obedience to this commandment, at the heart of our, our, our attempts, our striving to live out the truth of this commandment, is the gospel of grace again. I pointed out to you this morning that we enter into the commandment through that gateway, as it were, of grace. God says to us, I am your God who freed you out of slavery. And that's the way the commandment is presented to us uh, this afternoon as well. It is from the God who says to us, I have freed you from slavery to sin. Now let me show you how to live. Let me show you the way in which you should walk. And so it has everything to do with the gospel. It has everything to do with the grace of God towards us. It has everything to do with uh, our needing to be transformed by the Spirit of God. And so this afternoon, my theme for you is, You Shall Not Steal, uh, But Excel in the Grace of Giving. And we'll see how there's both a command here and an opportunity. I wonder if I were to ask you uh, this afternoon, which commandment do you struggle with in particular? Uh, which one is a particularly challenging commandment for you to, to obey? How many of you would say the Eighth Commandment? Imagine there are many of us, if we think of the Catechism's explanation, many of us who would say, well, if we talk about God forbidding not only outright theft and robbery, that none of us is particularly inclined to see this as a problem, outright theft or robbery, unless we were to talk to the kids about stealing cookies or candies when they're not allowed, or, or maybe the teenagers who, who are given to shoplifting most of us, I would say, uh, don't find that level of the commandment to be difficult to, to obey. I, I hope I'm right to say that, that none of you here this afternoon struggles with bank robbery or burglary. And if you do, please uh, talk to your elder after the service. But theft is, of course, much more complicated than that. And the Catechism really lays that out um, for us. And in some respects, if we think of the internet age, the digital age, it's become more complicated to live in obedience to the Eighth Commandment. That's true, of course, of the Seventh Commandment. You shall not commit adultery. I presume when you dealt with that commandment, you addressed the scourge of of pornography, for example. But it's much the same with the Eighth Commandment. If we think of the internet age, it's much easier, of course, to steal digital property from someone than it is to to break into their car and steal their CDs or their LPs or their A-tracks or whatever they happen to have at the time. It's a lot easier to share subscriptions that aren't meant to be shared uh, than it is to physically take somebody else's objects. The same goes for the indirect ways to steal that the catechism teaches us about. It mentions wicked schemes and devices as false weights and measures, deceptive merchandising, counterfeit money, and and usury. Those are all ways the catechism says that we we can steal. It's when we conduct business practices that are underhanded, and that seek to defraud their neighbor of what is rightfully his. Many of us aren't in a position to steal in these kinds of ways, and perhaps you're wondering this afternoon, how is it that I defraud my neighbor by force or by show of right? In a sense, we need to take this commandment into the 21st century and say, what are the ways in which we do these things today? Have you ever heard of time theft? Time theft is when, when employees get paid for time in which they're doing things other than work, might involve taking a longer break than you're allotted. It might involve doing things like checking Instagram while you should be uh, doing your work, receiving personal emails on company time. There's studies that show the U.S. economy loses about uh, $400 billion a year. $400 billion a year because of time theft. 43% of the employees uh, admitted to some sort of time theft. Now, that would be a great addition, you could say, to the catechism, uh, to say, here's another way in which we, we don't live in obedience to this commandment. And it's certainly worthwhile to take the, the measuring stick, as it were, of the law and, and hold it up against our lives. The, the law is described, scripture describes the law as a mirror. And it's worthwhile to, t- to stop at a certain point and, and hold up that mirror to our lives and say, what are the areas in which we've allowed our, our hearts to wander? What are the areas in which the, the law really confronts us with our, with our sin and our need for deliverance? I don't want to do that this afternoon. I want you to do that when you go home. Perhaps you can have a discussion around the, the dinner table. What I want to do this afternoon is, is to remind you that if I were to simply give you a list of ways in which you are sinning against this commandment, and you are, and then tell you to change, we would be no farther ahead, really. We wouldn't know how to change, and we wouldn't be any farther ahead in obeying this commandment because as with all the other commands that God gives us, this is not simply about making sure that our outward appearance or our outward actions and behavior is in line in conformity with the, the law of God. And the catechism makes that clear in two ways. It, it first of all says this. This is the very end. It's sort of a summary statement, of the la- that question answer t- 110. In addition, God forbids all greed and all abuse or squandering of his gifts. You see, the commandments are not, never about outward obe- obedience. As though the Christian life is a question of do this, don't do that, make sure that from the outside everything looks hunky-dory. The commandments are addressing our hearts. Jesus taught us that on the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? He said, if you're angry with your brother, you've, you've essentially committed murder in your heart, and if you've looked lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. Well, well the Catechism says, when it comes to the Eighth Commandment, it's greed. It's when your heart is drawn after the treasures of this world instead of the treasures of heaven. It's when, in a sense, you've replaced the, this, the position that God ought to have in your heart with something else, which becomes your object of worship. And so we're dealing with our hearts here. That's really what, what, what I want to address this afternoon is, what, what does our heart need to look like? And how do we go about receiving a transformed and changed heart there's also more because the catechism explains to us it's not just about not doing these things. It's about also doing other things. This is question answer 111. What does God require of you in this commandment? I must promote my neighbor's good whenever I can and may, deal with him as I would like others to deal with me, and work faithfully so that I may be able to give to those in need. Now we've moved from don't to to do. Not just don't steal, but live generously. Have a certain character to your life. And again, that means that our hearts will need to be transformed. If we're to live as those who are are changed from the inside out, we'll need to know where to turn. And that's why I read with you 2 Corinthians chapter 8, because I think we receive a beautiful example. Well, I know we receive a beautiful example of what it looks like to have a transformed heart. What it looks like when the grace of God takes somebody and changes them, renovates them from the inside out. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'll give you the background to this part of the letter to the Corinthians. The Jerusalem church has been going through trials. Um, they've been going through trials. They've had a famine in the, in the area, and so they, they've recently gone through persecution. Uh, the, the Jews have in the, kicked them out of the synagogues. They are going through a real uh, time of hardship, and there's ongoing instability on the political scene. And so what Paul has been doing is he's going around the churches in Asia Minor, in Greece, in Macedonia, and he's making a collection. He's taking a collection for the poor who are in Jerusalem. And then in this letter to the Corinthians, which is in Greece, Paul uses the Macedonians, that's northern Greece, the place where Alexander the Great was born, he uses the Macedonians as, a, as an example. He wants to use their example to spur on the Corinthians to similar generosity. The first thing to notice is the very opening verse. Verse. He writes this, he writes, moreover brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Paul starts with grace. So what's this generosity all about that that led the Macedonians to, to give to the people who are living in Jerusalem? He says it starts with grace and it's bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. It's something that comes from above. He's speaking of grace here not as that that regenerating work of the Spirit that brings us from death to life, but he's speaking about grace upon grace. Not only does God free us from slavery to sin, but he also causes us to walk in the freedom of the Spirit. That's his gracious work in us as well. And what that reminds us of is the fact that what he's doing is, he doesn't want the Macedonians to receive the praise here. We ought not to, to praise the Macedonians at this point. We ought to praise God for the work of grace that he's doing in our hearts. The same thing goes in the communion of the saints. When we notice people who are living according to the commands of God, we don't hold them up on a pedestal and say, well done. What we do is say, praise God, because he has taken a sinner and redeemed him. He has taken a sinner and transformed her. That's the working of the Spirit. And so when we think about generosity and keeping with the eighth commandment, what we ought to do is we ought to praise God for the work that he does in hearts and lives That he transforms people from grace to grace. God's grace is necessary. As you go home and you talk around the dinner table about the ways in which you are uh, failing to keep this commandment, or wanting to grow in your obedience to this commandment, never forget this, we need the transformative grace of God for it. So God receives the glory. I'm going to refer to the, uh, the bulletin again. Uh, I mentioned it was well, so well written. It, it says it there as well. Well, it's Spurgeon really who said it, I guess. Uh, we are to work as if it all depends on us, pray as if it all depends on God, and give God the glory for the results. So when we see the, the transforming power of the, of, of the gospel, of, of God's grace in people's lives, we say, Praise God, because that person is, is a testimony to the grace of God at work. But it gets even better. I think the, most, the next part is the most wonderful part of this passage. Because the work of God, this generosity that was inspired in their hearts, it didn't come out of a place of plenty. Look at verse 2. In a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. The Macedonian churches themselves had it far from easy. I mentioned a little bit this morning about how difficult it was for Christians in that time. It was difficult for the Macedonian Christians. They were being persecuted themselves in places like Thessalonica. But this is the most beautiful picture of the power of the gospel. In some respects, it's like a math equation. Let me give you the, the, whatever they're called, of the math equation. Great trial of affliction, plus abundance of joy, plus deep poverty, equals riches of their liberality. What do you need for generosity? You need, you need difficult circumstances and profound poverty and somehow an abundance of joy in the mix as well. And what you will end up with is great poverty. How in the world does great trial of affliction result in generosity? First of all, how does, gener- how does that joy come as well out of a, an abundance of affliction? and they have an abundance of joy, and they have deep poverty, and the result is deep generosity. Why? Because these people were transformed by the Spirit of Christ. Because these people were transformed by their relationship with Jesus. That's what happens when you have a relationship with Jesus, is your whole heart and your soul and your mind are changed and transformed after his image. You see, this joy that they had was entirely rooted in their relationship with Christ. That's how the other two parts of the equation could come together. That's how deep affliction and great poverty could come together in generosity. It's because of the abundance of joy that they had in Christ. And when I talk about this, um, this liberality, or the, Paul mentions the riches of their liberality, we have to remember this. he's not talking now in monetary terms, he's talking in spiritual terms. So these people gave uh, tremendously because they gave out of their poverty. He's not concerned about the amount here, he doesn't notice know any kind of amount either. He's just concerned how the extravagance of their giving came out of hearts that were changed, they were poor. You remember the story of Jesus, uh, or in Jesus' ministry, when he was watching the people come to the temple treasury? Remember these people coming with their lavish gifts and making sure that everybody saw how much they dropped in, and then the little widow came with her two copper coins and gave everything that she had to live on? That's the kind of thing Paul is showing us here as well. He's showing us somebody who has been a group of people who have been transformed by the power of the gospel. As if that's not enough, it gets perhaps even better. Verse 4 Uh, Paul witnesses in verse 3 to their their ability, their their giving according to their ability and beyond. And then he says in verse 4, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. They were begging Paul earnestly, like, please let us help out our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Isn't that wonderful? We're bombarded with crowdfunding and Kickstarter campaigns and this, that, and the other charity. And it can be overwhelming at times You say there are so many demands on our, on our wealth. There are so many demands on our generosity. And no doubt many of you have been on uh, different boards and committees where you're raising funds for schools and you're raising funds for the church and this, that, and the other thing. And sometimes you feel like a beggar. Here, grace has flipped everything. Grace does that. It flips everything on its head because now what's happening, the Macedonian Christians who are deeply afflicted and who are poor are begging Paul for the opportunity to give to the saints in Jerusalem. They beg for the privilege to share what little they have with these believers they've never met The only relationship with whom they have is in Christ Jesus. Please give us this privilege, they say. It's almost like, go to Paul, and and Paul's saying, listen, I know you're in a rough spot right now. Um, You can't help. Uh, We'll come back next year. This is not the time for you to be giving, but they beg him. They implore him, as as we read in verse 4. And Paul doesn't expect it. Verse 5, he says, not only as we had hoped. He's like, I wasn't expecting much. And you gave above and beyond. The Macedonians are, are refusing to let Paul take away what they see as an incredible privilege to show that they've been transformed by God's grace. So what is the privilege that they want? Well, Paul explains that to us as well. He says in verse 5, not only as we had hoped, but first they gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. They gave themselves. That's a beautiful picture of what they're doing, isn't it? And that's at the heart of generosity too, isn't it? It's, it's a giving of yourself. It's love. Isn't love at the heart of love self-sacrifice? So they love. And, and notice the order he puts it in. They, they love the Lord and they love each other. This morning we heard that with the commandments too, didn't we? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The measure of your love for God is going to be seen in the way that you love your neighbor. If your heart isn't given over to God, then it's going to be reflected in the way that you encounter uh, the people who live around you. And so Paul says, what we see in you Macedonians is that you love God. You have a deep and abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. You know how I know that? This is because I can see it in the way that you love each other. Their hearts were transformed from greed and envy and self-centeredness and selfishness to, to love for neighbor. They were directed outwards. And then Paul says, having given this beautiful example, he says to the Corinthians, um, I forgot to note where this this is. Oh, in verse 7, as you abound in everything in faith and speech and knowledge, he turns to the Corinthians, he says, see that you abound in this grace also. He says, look at the Macedonian example, and he says, go and do likewise. And the Spirit of God says to us this afternoon, go and do likewise. It's inspiring, isn't it, to see stories like this, and perhaps you have your own story of encounters of just the the profound grace of God transforming somebody's life. Well, that's the motivation Paul gives us this afternoon. He says, go and, and do likewise. question, of course, is why? Why should you go and do likewise this week? Because Paul says so? Because God says so? Well, yes, I guess, in part, of course. His commandments come to us, and we ought to live in obedience to them, But Paul says, actually, he says, I'm not saying this as a commandment, verse 8. I speak not by commandment. He doesn't want to lay this on them as an apostle of Jesus Christ, say, go and and live this way, because he's concerned again about their hearts. He wants to make sure it's their hearts that are transformed. God doesn't want us to, to live our lives in this sort of strict religiosity of obeying rules and regulations, doing what we think it is that he wants us to do, because we don't want him to be upset with us because we envision him to be some kind of master or tyrant who who, who demands that we slavishly obey the commands that he lays down. He doesn't want you to go to church or give to the church or give to the needy because you feel some oppressive sense of guilt or because you think that's what it means to be a, a good Christian. He doesn't want you to drop your money into the money bag because it would be awkward not to. He's concerned about your heart. The commandments come to us as, as means by which God wants to transform us uh, by the spirit of Christ. And so the message for you this afternoon is not for you to go home and feel pressured into giving more, more time, more resources, although God willing, that will be the result. It's for you to be overwhelmed by the grace of God and for that transformation to happen by the spirit of God. And so that's what I meant by saying the commandment is given to us as an opportunity It's an opportunity for you to show that your heart has changed. It's an opportunity for us to show that we are people who live for a kingdom that is not of this world, but is of the world to come. It's an opportunity for us to showcase to the world, to witness to the world, what it means to be transformed after the image of Jesus. Those who are not living for ourselves, but living for God, and because we're living for God, living for our neighbors. It's an opportunity for us to show that our hearts have been turned away from the idols of this world. The idol of mammon, as Bible, the Bible puts it. The idol of materialism. And to say that we are pursuing an entirely different course of life. Our obedience has to come out of a heart that's been transformed by the love of Christ. I wonder if the kids here remember the story of Zacchaeus. The story of Zacchaeus and the Gospels. You know the song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Remember the story? That was Zacchaeus. What did Jesus say to Zacchaeus from that tree? When Zacchaeus was in the tree, he said, Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm going to your house today. And so Jesus goes to the house of Zacchaeus. It's too bad the song usually stops there. I think it's the only verse I know anyway. There is another verse, um, but I never sing it with my kids because I forget what it is every time. But there's another verse, and something else happens after Zacchaeus comes down from the tree and Jesus goes to his house. What happens when Jesus comes into the house of Zacchaeus? Well, Zacchaeus stands up in front of everybody, and he says, I'm going to give half of my money to the poor, and everyone who I've defrauded, I'm going to give back four times what I ripped them off of. Four times. Half of his money to the poor. I have no idea how much he would have left at the end of that, by the way. Perhaps nothing. Isn't that amazing? Do you know what Jesus said after Zacchaeus stood up and declared that publicly? He said, today salvation has come to this house. Today salvation has come to this house. Why could he say that? How could he say that? Because Zacchaeus had demonstrated that he was a transformed person. Because he demonstrated that God had taken his heart in that moment and brought it from death to life. Zacchaeus was a walking dead man and the power of the Spirit had brought him to life. And it showed in the way that he loved others. He was a thief. He became a generous giver. That's what happens when Jesus comes into your house. That's what happens when Jesus has a home, a place in your heart. That's what happens when the Spirit of God transforms dead sinners. You become new. You become totally different. That's the work of regeneration. It takes people who are going this way and turns them in the opposite direction. When you are loved by Christ, you love others. That's always the case. There's no such thing as someone who loves Jesus but doesn't love others. Because the love of Jesus is demonstrated in a love for your neighbor. But we don't always live that way, do we? As we think of the example of Zacchaeus, as we think of our own lives, and we think of the way that we are still so often drawn to the treasures of this world, and we build our own kingdom, and we pursue our own. Desires and pleasures. How do we become more and more who Jesus wants us to be? How do we become more and more people who are characterized by the way, the following after Jesus? How do we stop just going through the motions? How do we move from duty to delight? Well, we look to Jesus even more. We look to Jesus even more. The answer comes from Paul again. Paul tells us the clue. Why should we be transformed? Why should we be different? He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 again, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. You want a foundation for your obedience to the Eighth Commandment? It's right here in the Word of God. This is to say, because Jesus Christ, though he was rich, became poor so that you might become rich. Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven, perfect fellowship with the Father that he had enjoyed from eternity past. He had the treasures of heaven. He had the entirety of the universe was his. It belonged to him. He was rich beyond compare and he gave it up to enter into our little world. I mentioned this morning how I love to climb in the mountains in BC. Let's get back on the mountaintop. And think again of how small we are and how insignificant this world really is. Or let's stare up at the night sky again and think of the vastness of the universe and the smallness of Earth. You ever see the picture uh, from some time back called the pale blue dot? If you haven't seen it, Google it after the service. Pale blue dot. It's a picture of Earth from the Hubble Space Telescope. I think that's it. Anyway, it's a picture of Earth suspended in a sunbeam. The picture is this big, and Earth is this microscopic little dot in a ray of sunbeam. That's how small and insignificant we are. Actually, I mean, it's not even the whole universe, so it doesn't even display it accurately enough. That's the world we live in. And Paul says, Jesus left behind heaven to enter into this pale blue dot. He gave it all up. For your sake. You want a motivation to live generously? You want a motivation to give what you have for the sake of others? Look to Jesus. He gave up everything to become a baby, a helpless child in some backwater province of the Roman Empire, an insignificant place, insignificant family. No room in the inn, born in a manger. Have you ever noticed how in Jesus' life he had to borrow everything? He had to borrow everything. He borrowed food. Right? He he fed the five thousand, the four thousand on different occasions. It wasn't his food. He borrowed a coin at a certain point because he needed to make a point with the tax that they were paying. He borrows a donkey. He borrows a room. He's laid in a borrowed grave. He said to his disciples, Foxes have dens and birds have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This was the creator of the world who entered into our existence for our sakes, Paul says. For your sake, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Do you lack the motivation for living generously? Do you lack the motivation for loving your neighbor? whether that's the person sitting beside you in the pew or the person living next to you in your subdivision? Well, if you haven't received anything from Christ, by all means, keep living the way that you're living. But if you've received everything from him, isn't that the foundation for transformed living? Isn't that the foundation for a radically different way, a radically different set of priorities, a radically different goal in life? Paul says, you are so rich. I'm sure parents have had this conversation with their kids. I recall my own conversation with my parents at the time, wishing, I wish I were rich. I wish we were rich. We could do this, that, and the other thing. And the parent's saying, we are rich. And then the kid rolls their eyes and says, I know, we're rich in the Lord. And that's the phrase. It's not an exciting prospect. When our hearts are are tuned to greed and selfishness. For us to dwell on the spiritual blessings that we have. To say that I, I can give up the prospect of material wealth because I've got the forgiveness of sins. And I've got the, the righteousness of Christ. And I've got an inheritance in heaven that is undefiled and imperishable and unfading, kept in heaven for me. But the heart that is transformed by Christ is, is captivated by Christ and captivated by the treasures of heaven and the spiritual blessings that we have received in Christ Jesus as well. And that means that we'll spend more time meditating on the glorious riches of the gospel than on what we can do with our next paycheck or how much we need to reserve for retirement or how we can fit something else into the budget. If we look to Christ, if we spend our time meditating on the wonders of the gospel, on what we have received living in this world on this pale blue dot, sinners who have no claim on anything from God, then we will realize that what truly counts in this life is that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, body and soul, in life and in death. You see, how is it that Christians can live in countries where there's warfare or persecution or Christians who live in abject poverty Because they have it all in Christ. Because we have it all in Christ. We have much more in the way of material prosperity, but it is still true that what we have, we have in Christ. And He is everything we need. So as you go uh, and consider this commandment, hold Christ before your eyes. Remember that He gave up the riches of heaven for your sake. He did it so that through His poverty, you might become rich. Rich beyond measure, rich beyond the wildest dreams and imaginations. So go and do likewise. Amen.